hello. Testing, testing. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. I am part of our pastoral staff, and it's your first time here. We're really glad that you can be here. We hope that you can feel welcome. Looking forward to our first prayer gathering. Again, this is a year where we want to practice prayer as a church, and we're going to do this at the end of every month, the last Sunday. We're going to gather together. It's not going to be here. It's going to be literally just one minute down the streets at Orange Strip United Methodist Church. Come early. There will be coffee for first come, first serve at that, at that time as well, and looking forward to that. This is your first Sunday. We've been going through a sermon series in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. We started last week, and we are continuing on today. And today, we're, it's a long passage. If you look in your programs, or if you look at chapter 2 of Exodus, and so I'm going to be referring to it throughout the message, but, uh, and so if you could have the, the program ready, but we're going to be reading a part of it for, to open our time today. I'm going to read from verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and then we're going to skip down all the way to chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, but we will be going through the whole text today. And here at our church, we believe that when we read the scriptures, our God is alive and he is speaking. So can we all rise together as we read this passage? Exodus chapter 2, starting verse 1 to verse 4, and then we'll skip down to verse 23. So it says in verse 1, Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. And skipping down verse 23. And after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out and their cry for help because of their difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. This is a reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, we invite you to be here today. May we recognize that you are already here, and so may your spirit stir in us as you speak to us through the scriptures, and help us, O Lord, to walk away not just informed, but transformed. Amen. You may be seated. Twenty twenty three was a rough year for TV shows and movies. Everything was pretty bad out there. A lot of it had to do with the writer's strike, I heard. But twenty twenty four, if you've been seeing previews and trailers, like it's loaded. There's a lot of movies coming out. There's a lot of TV shows coming out. One show in particular that I am very excited for is the final season of this one particular show. I'm not sure if there's any fans in this room of it, but Cobra Kai. Any fans? Any fans? Yes. Cobra Kai, it is an amazing show. You could stream it on Netflix right now if you wanted to. Not right now, but when you get home. It is a martial arts comedy about these high school students trying to learn karate from different rival karate dojos. As I describe it, it sounds so lame, but it is excellent. Like, such a fun show. Uh, But you know what makes the show so brilliant? It's not just the show itself but the fact that it's based on this classic movie in the 1980s called The Karate Kid. 
Some of you have never seen this before, but this is like a cult classic. And the whole reason why Cobra Kai was even created was because the creators of Cobra Kai were such big fans of the 1980s Karate Kid franchise that they wanted to finish and continue that story 30 years later. And so if you watch Cobra Kai as a Karate Kid fan, there's so many references to the original films. There are so many like, uh, like ways, guest stars that come where you're like, oh my gosh, that's that person from Karate Kid Part 2. It is amazing where if you watch Cobra Kai right now, so let's just pretend you watch Watch it without knowing Karate Kid, you will still enjoy it. It is still a very good show. But if you've watched Karate Kid and then you watch Cobra Kai, it's a great show. Awesome show. Like you will see the brilliance of what these creators are doing with Cobra Kai. And the reason why I bring this up is because this is why the story of Exodus is so important for followers of Jesus to know. Because if you want to fully understand the Jesus story, you have to understand the Exodus story. We mentioned last week the story of Exodus. It is the most repeated story in the Bible. Of all the stories in the Old Testament that gets referenced, Exodus by far is the most referenced story. So the only way you can understand the story of the Bible is if you're familiar with what happened in Exodus. Because without, watching, without uh, reading Exodus or knowing the story, it's like watching the end of a movie while skipping the opening scene. You might be a little bit lost. It's like listening to Martin Luther King's Jr. I Have a Dream speech without having any knowledge of segregation that was taking place during his time. It'd be like reading the diary of Anne Frank and you have no idea that the Holocaust was taking place. Exodus, it is central to understanding the context for everything that we read about the story of Scripture and about Jesus. One author says it like this, quote, The Exodus stands as a pivotal event in the Old Testament. If you listen closely, you will hear echoes of the story of redemption throughout all Scripture. Whatever book of the Bible you are reading, and whichever Christian practices you are involved in, echoes of Exodus are in there somewhere. And the reason why the story of Exodus, it is so central, why people looked at the story being, this is a story that we have to remember, is because of what the story of Exodus is all about. There's many themes in Exodus, but we mentioned last week that the main theme of Exodus is this. It is the story of God where he reveals who he is and what he is like. This is where God introduces his character, who he is, what he is like to his people, And we learn in Exodus chapter 1 that this God, when he introduces himself, he is faithful to his promises, and he wants people who read the story to know that. He's a God who rescues people from slavery. And most interestingly, he's a God with the name Yahweh. He's not just God. He has a personal name, meaning he wants a personal relationship with his people, and that's why he is named Yahweh. Now, the question we have to ask today is, well, what happens when this God enters into your life? What happens when this faithful God who rescues his people from slavery and he has a name, what happens when he comes into your life and you actually relate to him? This is where the story of Moses comes in. The context of this story that, we're about, that we kind of talked about or touched upon is that the nation of Israel, they're in Egypt, they're flourishing, they are multiplying, and there's a bad guy named Pharaoh who rules over Egypt. He is not happy. 
All of Exodus 1, he just sees the Jews multiplying and he creates all these plans to stop it. He says, let's put them under hard labor and make them slaves and they're slaving away. But the, the Israelites keep multiplying. They're still fruitful. And so at one point he goes, hey, he tells all the nurses, can you murder the children when they're born? When you see them in the hospital and they come out of the wombs of the, mom, of the mothers, why don't you murder them? And they don't do it. And they keep multiplying and growing. And so finally what happens is Pharaoh, at the end of chapter 1 of Exodus... He has a plan where instead of having just a few people try to murder, he says in chapter 1, verse 22, it writes, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Could you imagine if there was a a, a command given nationwide saying, hey, any child who's a boy, feel free, citizens, to grab that person and throw them away. In fact, it is your civic duty to do that. Dark times. That would be very scary for parents to live through, for anybody to live through. And after this command, for the very first time, we don't see Israel multiplying and being fruitful. And so the question we have to ask is, did Pharaoh finally succeed? Is he stopping what God's trying to do with Israel to make them flourish? And that's where Exodus 2 comes in, the passage we're looking at. Exodus 2 is the moment that we are going to be introduced to Israel's liberator. And it's not Moses. It's Yahweh. Because when you look at the life of Moses, what you're going to see is not what Moses is doing, but what Yahweh does through Moses. Yahweh is the liberator of Israel, and he chooses Moses and enters into Moses' life and works in Moses' life to accomplish things that Yahweh wants to accomplish. And the question to ask for us today is, many of you here, I know you're here at church, you believe perhaps in a God, you're familiar with Jesus, and you're like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. But for a lot of us, the question is, but does he work in your life? Is he present in your life? Can you really say you have a relationship with the living God right now, where he is just present throughout your day? And if he is, what does, what does that look like? What does it look like to have a God like Yahweh present in your life? And we're going to see through the life of Moses what that looks like. Three things. Number one, this is a God who directs. He's a God who directs your life. Number two, this is a God who redeems. He redeems your past. And number three, this is a God who sees. He sees your suffering. A God who directs, God who redeems, a God who sees. First, this is God who directs our lives. So going back to our passage, again, if you have your passage just with you, Exodus 2, it opens with a mother who gives birth to a baby boy. She can't hide the child much longer. I mean, parents, even those of you who volunteer for education, you know, you can't even hide a child and keep them quiet for three minutes. Try three months. That's what this mom was trying to do because she was worried that at any moment an Egyptian could come, hear a baby, grab her child, and just toss him away because it's a baby boy that they're, and they're all called to throw away these baby boys. And so what happens? Verse 3 to 4, if you can look with me, look what it says in the text. Verse 3, it writes, But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen. So this child gets, the mom throws the child into the river, but not before she constructs a basket to make sure that he's okay. And yet when he goes, it's like, what's going to happen? Most likely this child's lost. And she just is a desperate attempt to just have some preservation to see what would happen. So this child is gone. The mom says goodbye to her son. But then look where the, the basket floats to. Look at verses 5 to 6 with me. It says, Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. 
And she saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it and opened it, and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy crying. When this child was crying, Pharaoh's daughter just happened to be Pharaoh's daughter in the river, in the Nile. All of a sudden, as she sees this child, the child's sister, who was watching this child go down into the Nile, was watching the whole thing. She goes to Pharaoh's daughter, and look what happens in verses 7 to 9. It writes, Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother, so the mom who put the child in the basket. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to the mother, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. And so the woman took the boy and nursed him. The child is back with the mother, and the mother is nursing his child. And we see in verse 10, this is not just any child. He grows up to be Moses, the great liberator. Look at verse 10 with me. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. What is going on in this scene? What's our takeaway for this? Growing up, I watched many movies. And I've learned when you watch a movie, the most important thing about a movie, it's not who stars in it. If you see starring Tom Cruise, that means nothing. You know what matters most? Not who stars in the movie, who is directing the movie. The director is by far the most important person in the movie because the director oversees the entire movie process. They are the ones who interpret the script that they receive. They are the ones that shows you what they want to show you to the visuals and camera angles. The director is the one who guides the actors and tells them what role they should play in the movie. And every director, if you watch enough of their movies, they all have a very particular style. They all have certain trademarks that are just there. For example, if you ever watched a Steven Spielberg movie, Jurassic Park, E.T., you'll notice a couple of themes that just come up in almost every movie. There's always a family involved with kids. There's always a sense of childlike wonder and awe, like that dinosaur scene in Jurassic Park and the, the music. You're like, oh, wow, because that's a Spielberg classic move. There's always this dramatic music with like strings and it just touches your emotions because every Spielberg movie, the composer is this famous composer named John Williams. And he always has him write the score for his movies. Or you know you're watching a Michael Bay movie, Michael Bay, Transformers, Armageddon, when you see explosions happening everywhere, high big scale production, the story, it makes zero sense and you don't care. That's Michael Bay. That is a classic Michael Bay film. Or you know you're watching a Christopher Nolan film, Inception, Tenant, Oppenheimer, when it has like this non-linear narrative where you're like, wait, what, what order is this? He likes to mess with time. When there's like minimal CGI. You know, people thought Oppenheimer, he dropped a real nuclear bomb because so, he has a reputation of using realism. He's like, yo, I'm not that crazy. But that's just his reputation, non-CGI. And he always ends his movie with an ambiguous ending. It's always he wants the audience to talk about the movie once the movie is done. And so even though in these movies you never see the director himself, you can recognize the director's presence because of his style and his classic trademarks that are in the movie. And similarly, in Exodus chapter 2, you don't see God mentioned anywhere. Yahweh's name is not mentioned anywhere in this story, and yet you can recognize his presence. Why? His style and his classic trademarks are all over the story, navigating and directing every single part. For example, do you notice who all the characters are in this story so far? Do you notice who shows up the most here? This chapter is dominated by women. 
there are three women involved in the rescuing of the child Moses. Moses' mom, Moses' sister, and Pharaoh's daughter. Which is very interesting because back then in the ancient Near East, during this time when Exodus was written, women were viewed as so insignificant that if they ever appear in any ancient story, they were the problem of the story. They were the ones who brought the problem into whatever narrative is there. And yet throughout the Bible, you'll always see stories where women played a significant role in the solution. Sarah, Rahab, Ruth, Mary, the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Who were they? Women. Because this is God's director trademark. He always picks people and grabs people and uses people who the world sees as insignificant, the poor, the elderly, children, women, and he uses them to play the most significant roles in his plans. That is a classic trademark of Yahweh. Notice also this story, it is filled with surprises, with twists, with ironies, where everything Pharaoh plans, it backfires on him. For example, Pharaoh, well, he, who did he want to kill? Not just the babies, but the boys. Why? Because the boys, they're the threat to Egypt. The boys, they are dangerous. But you know who ends up being the gangsters? It's the girls. They were the gangsters in the story. They're the ones who fought back against Pharaoh. Very fascinating how God did that. Moses' mother, Moses' mom, he, she puts Moses in the basket down the Nile because she can no longer care for him. And what happens? She gets him back, and she's told to nurse him, and she's getting paid for it. She's getting paid by the Egyptians to nurse her own child. Moses, if this didn't happen where Pharaoh decided to make this decree to murder all the baby boys, if that didn't happen, Moses was destined to be raised as a slave. That was his destiny. But because of everything that took place, where did Moses get raised? In the Egyptian palace, being raised in royalty. And notice also that this story, it takes place not just when Israel was in captivity, where they're under bondage, but it is in the darkest moment of Israel's captivity. In the darkest moment when genocide for the first time was going to happen to the Israelite children, this was the moment where Yahweh moved. This is the moment where Yahweh is now at work, forming a liberator to free his people. Because this is the way God directs. His trademark, his style, his directional approach, it is everywhere all over Exodus chapter 2. You don't just see it in Moses' life. You see it in so many characters in the Bible in their lives when he's directing their lives. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, do you see it in your life? If you are a follower of Jesus, do you see God's trademark and his directorial style happening in your life? Because if God is directing your life, Don't be surprised that he's going to use the most insignificant people to shape you, to do significant things in your life. I mean, think about the times when you spiritually grew. I heard so many testimonies from people in our church where I'm like, hey, how did you become a Christian? And they'll tell me, like, you know, I was in youth group, and there's this random youth teacher who just taught every week, and man, I just, like, came to know Jesus through that. I'm like, what's his name? Like, I forgot his name. But he just changed my life. Or someone's like, I was at this youth rally or this college retreat, and there's a guest preacher, and gave a powerful message, and I just gave my life to Christ, and I felt so healed. I don't know who that guy was, but he just kind of came, and I remember him. Or so many of us, there's that random neighbor, that random roommate, that random person who said, hey, why don't you, do that? Why don't you come out to church with me? Or why don't you come out to this event with me? Just change your life. You don't remember their names. Because that's how God works. God just brings these random people 
who makes significant shifts for you in your life. If God is directing your life not only to random people, but your life is going to be filled with just surprises, with twists, with ironies. If you told me 20 years ago that I was going to be a pastor at a church, I wouldn't believe you because I wasn't even a Christian. That would make no sense to me. If you told me 15 years ago that I would not just have a child, but I'd be a girl dad, I'd freak out because I was really awkward with kids. I still am. But I was like way more awkward with kids back then. I'm like, what do I do? How do you take care of a daughter? If you told me just five years ago that, hey, you're going to be a lead pastor at a church and you're going to have not just one daughter, two daughters and a son, I'd say, dude, get behind me, Satan. No way. And yet that's just how God works. He surprises. He brings twists into your life. He brings ironies. And not only that, if God is directing your story, if God is directing your life, you can, you can expect for him to be present, especially in the dark moments of your life. When I look back at the moments where God was like most present in my life, it was not when my marriage was going really well. It was when my marriage was really hard. That's when I felt God's presence. It's not when my career felt most secure. I'm like, dude, God's blessings. It wasn't like that. It was when it felt most insecure that God all of a sudden felt very powerful. That's how God works. If God is directing your story, expect random people to show up, expect surprises to take place, and expect God to especially show up in the dark moments of your life. Here's the problem, though. You know when movies go bad? It's when the director and the star actor, they have conflict. When the actor's like, no, the movie should be this way, and the director's like, dude, just follow my lead. And he's like, no, I'm Tom Cruise. And they just kind of have this battle. That's when movies get wonky, and that's probably why for a lot of us, your life does not look anything like the way God directs it, because you are choosing not for God to direct your life, you're directing your own life. For a lot of you, it's up to you to decide how you live your life. And that's why your life, it is not filled with these random people. You are by yourself with your inner circle. There's like two people, your spouse and maybe your close friend who you grab a drink with every once in a while. They're the only people shaping your life because you choose who to spend time with at your convenience. For some of you, your life, there is no surprises. There are no twists. There are no ironies. It is the same week over and over again. You share in your community group the same stuff. Work is hard. Work is hard. I'm tired. Because for you, everything's predictable. You choose comfort. You choose convenient at every opportunity you get. It's all about, it's a classic OC thing. I just want to be comfortable. And so your life, it's totally predictable. And some of you, the dark moments of your life... That is not when God is most present. That is when bitterness is most present. That's when you're most angry, these dark moments where you just felt abandoned. Because for you, you are directing your life, and God, you want him to be the actor. How do we live a life where it's shaped by God's direction and not our own? It's very simple. It's not complicated. You got to follow God's direction. God gives us direction. You just got to follow it. How? Just think about a movie. How does an actor follow the, the, the movie role that he's playing? Read the script. Do you know your lines? Read the script. Talk to any actors. The most important thing, read the script. Memorize the script. We have a literal script. It's called scripture. It's a literal script. And we try to practice this every day where we read it so that we can be familiar with God's story, his direction, where he's trying to lead us. 
And the story, the script is so not specific, and that's why we need to talk to the director. Every good actor, they talk to the director to get director notes on their role. We need to talk to the director, and we have access to him through prayer, where in light of the script, how am I supposed to live my life today? In light of the script, how does this apply to me in the roles that I'm living as a father, as a husband, as a worker? And then every day what happens is you get a choice. Every day you get the opportunity to choose. Are you going to live according to your direction in life or God's direction? You have the script. You have the opportunity in dialogue. What do you choose? The problem with us is a lot of us, we ignore the script. We ignore talking to him and we just improv. We just wing it each day. And no wonder the movie is wonky. No wonder your life feels disjointed because you're totally going against the direction of how your creator is guiding you to go. And so learn in the story of Moses first, if God is working in your life, expect God to direct your life and he offers direction for us. Secondly, when we look at the story of Moses, we see that there is a God who redeems our past. In Exodus chapter 2, after Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses in, whoops, sorry, after he takes Moses in, uh, time passes, it fast forward, and the movies usually show that Moses, he becomes like this chiseled 20-year-old that's just kind of there. You know, Moses actually becomes, it's 40 years later. He's now 40, so he's my age, so I'm in my prime right now, okay? So 40 years old, just ready to move on, and that's the time that passed. And we're not really familiar with what happened here. We know the, you know, the whole basket story. We know the Red Sea story. But here, like, what happened life in Egypt? And there's, there's three significant moments that happen here. Number one is that Moses, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and Moses, he kills him. So look at verse 11 and 12 with me. It says, years later, after Moses had grown up, He went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people, and looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. After he murders this person, Moses, he has has to run away from Egypt now because he's now uh, wanted and he's he's a fugitive. So look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses, he fled from Pharaoh and went went to live in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, the land of Midian, just know that's not actually a land. That's that's not a place. It's actually a people. Because the Midianites, they were um, traveling nomads. They didn't own any land. Uh, Here's a good analogy who the Midianites are. Uh, If you guys ever watched Star Wars, it's like, hey, I need to go, and I'm a fugitive. Where are you going to go? They're like the Jawas, okay? So the Jawas, if you're familiar with Star Wars, they're just like this traveling group just selling different parts. They have no property, no land on their own. Moses is like, can I join you guys? Because he's on the run. So he's with the Jawas right now, just roaming the land. And what happens is Moses, he lives with them. And it's not just for a few years. When you watch the movies, you think, and Moses, he's like living in the land and he's there for maybe like a year or two. But you know how Moses was with the Jawas, the Midianites? You know how long he was there? Exodus chapter 7, verse 7 tells us, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Moses was 40. He got, ran with the Jawas. And then he, when he comes back, he's 80. 40 years. Moses was with them for 40 years living as a nomad. Now, how did Moses feel about this, living with them? How did he feel just being out there in the wilderness by himself? We just imagine those movie scenes of the protagonist, he's like in the, you know, the field, just kind of doing his own business, farming. He's just living this life of peace, and it's all good until God interrupts him. Not the case at all with Moses. 
We get a glimpse of Moses' inner life when you look at verse 21 to 22. Look what it says in verse 21 to 22. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And she gave birth to a son, and he named, he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Imagine I had a son, and I'm like, you will be named depression, because I am so depressed. So, yo, like, what are you doing? But that's how they named their kids back then. Like, what you're going through, you just name them, and it kind of, like, determines who they are and their future. Moses, in a time where where you lived and who you were associated with meant everything, Moses had nothing. The Midianites did not have any land, so Moses had no land. The Midianites, they didn't have any family. They're just these traveling nomads. Moses was just a, was a bunch of people who had no identity. Moses had nothing. He was, by saying he's a sojourner with an alien and, a, and no land, he's per se, I have nothing right now. Because when you think about Moses' life, he went from royalty to fugitive. He went from identifying with the royal family to walking around with these Jawas just all around the desert. He went from living in a palace to living in the wilderness. He went where he grew up in the most prestigious educational system. Just think Troy High School. Just think the most prestigious type of schooling where you go, oh, you're meant for big things. And yet, he only is destined for one role. He can only have one role in the wilderness, a shepherd, a very lowly job. How would you feel if that was your life? Moses, we know how he feels. He looks at everything, he goes, Gershom, I have nothing. It's a depressing life. And again, it's not just a moment, 40 years, up till he's 80 years old. That's how Moses feels. Now, most of us, when we look back at our life, we probably haven't experienced much homelessness, in this, at least in the OC. But I feel like a lot of us could resonate with Moses about how he feels about his past. There's a book that's called How to Inhabit Time by James K. Smith, a very deep, good book. And James K. Smith, he says, there's two ways people usually look at their past, and usually it's a mixture of these two of how we look at our past. The first way is you look at your past when you think about your childhood and so forth, and you have a feeling of joy. You have a feeling of, hey, I don't want to go back to that time. You know when you feel that way, what they call that? It's nostalgia. You feel nostalgic for the past. When I see pictures of my childhood, I feel very nostalgic. I'm like, dude, those are good times. I wish I could be a kid again. It makes me just kind of feel and remember, like, those are really happy times when I was a kid with my friends. Versus some of us, when you look back at certain parts of your past, you don't feel joy, but you feel like regret. You feel like cringe. You feel like, oh, don't remind me. You shudder. Because that's not nostalgia. When you look back in your past like that, you know what that's called? Shame. It's shame. When I see pictures of myself in high school, I'm like, oh, shame. Lots of shame. Because childhood was happy. I didn't like high school that much. I love talking about childhood. High school is a little bit of a dark mystery for me because that's a lot of things that were painful. Now, I'm sure for you, when you look back at your life, there's probably a lot of moments that's filled with nostalgia for you. But I'm pretty sure for everyone here, a lot of things, it's a lot of shame. That's why you keep a lot of yourself very hidden from people. Because we like to hide our shame. And yet you think back at your life and, dude, there's like moments in your childhood where you remember deep rejection from like close friends and it's very deep within you and you act like you're cool, but it's still shaping you right now because there's a lot of shame. 
For some of you, you remember your parents, they're really absent in your life. They didn't show up to your ball games. They didn't show up to those honor awards that all the other parents showed up to. And you live with your parents right now. There's this weird chasm that's there because deep down inside there's a little bit of bitterness because back there's a lot of shame in that feeling of who your parents were and how they treated you. Some of you didn't get into the university you wanted to and now you're at the university you're at and you just don't like to talk about it because it just haunts you still. There's a lot of shame that's there. You might have done things in your past. You did things that you remember but you're trying to think about to people and yet you bury that because, again, that's shame. That's shame. You're like Moses. Where Moses, he looks as like it was nothing or shame. But us, we look back at our life like, dude, this is a lot of shameful stuff. But you know what's really interesting is Even though Moses and us, we look back at our past, we're like, dude, we just kind of shudder and think that was such a negative moment that I want to move forward from. We know from Moses, this is not the end of his story. He's an 80-year-old man reflecting like, yeah, my life sucks now, and this is probably going to suck forever. But Moses, there's actually a lot more that's going to happen in his life, and we know why even without reading the story. You know why? Again, how many years was Moses in the wilderness? 40. 40. 40 is a very interesting number. If you've ever read the Bible, you'll know the number 40 appears everywhere. It's there when the Noah's, uh, the the ark, 40 days, 40 nights, it flooded. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Israel, they were wandering the wilderness for 40 years. And the reason why is because whenever you see the number 40 in the Bible, it is a signal that God is preparing someone to do something big. It is a time period of preparation. And Moses, he didn't know it, but those 40 years living in the wilderness, he was being prepared very practically. He's going to be navigating the topography, the geography through the wilderness, shepherding and taking care of sheep. And what's he going to be doing soon? Leading Israel out, navigating through the topography, geography, uh, leading them as shepherd over sheep. Very practically, he's being formed for 40 years to do this. Very personally, those 40 years in the wilderness, no longer an Egyptian palace, but he's just this lowly shepherd. You know what teaches anybody? Humility. You are not proud in those moments. And that's why the book of Numbers describes Moses as the most humble person on the planet because of those 40 years. And most especially, not just practically, not just personally, but spiritually. It was not in the palace of Egypt that Moses encountered God in a personal way. He knew Elohim in Egypt. But it was in the wilderness that he encountered Yahweh. God became real to Moses. And in a similar way, when God is directing our lives, we think everything that happened in the past is just bad, negative, whereas in reality, if God is directing your life, all of that is preparation for whatever God has planned for you. James K. Smith, again, he says it like this. I love this quote. He says, quote, Shame, it lives off the lie that my past is viewed as a failure. Grace lives off the truth of God's wonder-working mercy. My past, my story, is taken up into God and God's story. God is writing a new chapter of my life, not starting a new book after throwing up the first draft of my prior existence. And he goes on, Indeed, what God has prepared for me has gone before. My personal history isn't something to regret. It is something God can deploy in ways I never could have imagined. That's how God brands our past, because he's a God who redeems. 
Some of you right now, I know you are experiencing setbacks in your life, disappointments. Your timeline is not matching the timeline that you had planned. And you interpret this all as a negative. But remember, we have a God, if he's working in your life, who uses all of these experiences, including the bad ones, for a greater purpose. Things we can't even imagine. When I was a young pastor, I remember members of our church, when they experienced grief, I tried to show I cared, but I really didn't understand because I didn't really experience that much suffering when I was young. Right now, when people experience grief, well, I get them because I went through a lot of stuff too. And it's just a different experience because all the stuff that I've gone through the past decade, I'm like, oh, yeah, you just created this bigger heart for me to better minister to people where I didn't like that moment and yet you're using me and forming and using all of that stuff to minister to others. I think that's how God uses a lot of us. It's not this new theology book that teaches me to empathize with people. It's not this, oh, this moment of prayer. It's literally everything God did in my life to minister to people. That's why, you know, pastor kids, a lot of you, half of y'all are traumatized, right? Y'all got issues, the PKs in this room. Who best ministers to the PKs in the room? It's the PKs. You guys have to minister to each other. You get it. Because all that you went through helps you minister to one another. Child of divorce. Those of you who have been children of broken families, you know who best ministers to children of divorce? It's other people who've been children of divorce. They get it. You don't like it, but God uses that. People who are sexually broken or something just happened to you or you did make choices that just sexually broke you, you know who best ministers to you? It's not me. It's other people who experience sexual brokenness. Because all the things that happen to us, we could see it as something that's just bad and negative. Or if we see that when God's working in your life, he's using that itself for something. Not just to move forward, but as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4, he comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. This is who God is. A God who uses everything in your life for a deeper, greater purpose that you'll never understand. And lastly, the last thing we learn about Moses' life is this is a God who doesn't just direct, who doesn't just redeem, but he sees you. This God sees you. So the camera in the story was focusing on Moses and what he went through in the wilderness. At the end of chapter 2, it shifts and goes back to Israel. And we see what's happening in the life of Israel. Look at verses 23 to 25 with me. It says, After a long time, the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites, they groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. Let's pause there. Three different words to describe them crying out. They groaned, they cried out, and they're crying for help. You know why? Israel is still under bondage. Forty years, 80 years has passed, and Israel, from the very beginning of chapter 1, they're still also in the same situation Why is God so silent? Why is God not here? Why doesn't he answer our oppression and what's happening? And I know a lot of you in this room, you can resonate with this because you're going through stuff. It's taking a long time. Why is God so silent? We have couples in our church right now, they really want kids. They really want a family. And yet God seems so silent. I mean, just know, church, there is a unique pain of infertility and miscarriage that people just don't understand until you go to yourself. 
It is this unique silent pain where, especially women, they look at their bodies and wonder, is there something wrong with me and my body? Is there something wrong with our family and like what God has planned for us? They have no control of what could happen. It is this unique silent pain that is agonizing. And all they could do is cry out to God and God seems strangely silent. We have people in our church, they have lost loved ones the past two years and the grief is still very palpable. They, don't, they want to move on. They want to be normal. And yet it is really hard to be normal when someone that important in your life is now missing and you won't see them again. There are people in our church who I know have deep anxiety. They have deep depression, mental health issues all the time that they wrestle with. They are, have suicidal ideation. They tell people what they're going through. A person gives them advice. And when they hear that advice, like, you just don't get it. The fact that you're giving me advice shows you don't get what depression is. You don't get what I'm going through. And if you ever get to that place, like, it is so lonely. You feel so alone because it seems like nobody sees you. Nobody knows what you're going through. Nobody understands. And that's where Exodus gives this powerful statement where it tells us, but Yahweh, he sees you. Yahweh is not just someone going, hey, let me give you advice about that. Before anything, it says, Yahweh, he sees Israel. He sees you in your pain. He sees you in your suffering, in your waiting. He sees you. Look what it says in verse 24. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the Israelites, and God knew the Exodus writer is trying to show us, even though it seems like God is silent, especially when it's hard, he is not absent. In fact, Israel, they have no clue that God, during these 80 years, what is he doing? He is forming a liberator. He is grabbing a child and slowly forming him so that he could be the type of liberator that could lead them out of their bondage. That is what this God is doing. And so while Israel is experiencing God's silence, in reality, Exodus is trying to show this God deeply cares and he will answer them. How do we know he's going to answer? Key line, God remembered his covenant. God remembered his covenant. That is a key line and it's so key and it doesn't really stand out to us because when we see that phrase, God remembered his covenant, it seems like God's like, mm-hmm, oh, oh my gosh, Israel, I forgot about you. Okay, I'll, 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 I remember you guys now. That's what it sounds like, right? That is not what's going on in this passage. Every time you see this phrase, God remembered, it's everywhere in the Bible. It is meant to be a signal for readers to watch out. Something's about to happen. You ever watch Avengers? Every movie that's the Avengers and Marvel, there's always a scene where everyone's in trouble and they're like, oh, we're going to lose. And the bad guys are coming. I know what happens. The first thing that happens is you hear the music. Dun, 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 dun. And then phew, all these people come. Now, when I'm watching the movie and I'm just like watching them in trouble and I hear the music, I'm like, oh man, Thor's coming, Captain America's coming. I don't see them yet, but I know they're coming because that music, it's the cue that something is about to happen. In the Bible, the cue for readers is God remembered. Because when you see God remembered, you're going to see, oh, he's about to do something because that happens every time. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah, and then the water began to subside. Genesis chapter 19, verse 29, God remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the upheaval. 
Genesis 30, verse 22, God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. Because remember his covenant, this is the Avengers cue in the story of the Bible. Because to remember it is a signal that God is about to act in a decisive and conclusive way. God remembers in Exodus 2, and you're going to see what happens next week in Exodus 3 when he comes. And what's really encouraging about this story is that not only did God remember Israel here, but this is not the only time God remembers. Throughout the centuries, we have a God who always hears the cries of the oppressed, not under Pharaoh, but under sin and death. And this God, he remembered his covenant where at one point he sent another deliverer, forming him. And when he came down, the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus came to free us from the enslavement of sin, death, shame. And yet he did this not by leaving a palace in Egypt, but leaving the heavenly courts. Jesus, he did not strike an Egyptian, but he was struck himself. Jesus, he did not experience shame over his past, but he experienced shame on our behalf for you. And when you follow Jesus as your deliverer, as your liberator, God promises and you are free from a greater slavery than Israel ever went through. And we know also, if we follow Jesus, one day, the Avenger music cue is going to happen again, where Jesus is going to come back. He's going to remember his covenant, and he's going to take action over all the world, all its brokenness, all its sin, all its death, and to make all things new. And so to conclude, what's our practice this week? A couple of practices, whatever applies to you. Some of you, you need to get back where you need to stop being the director of your life and be the actor. And you need to read your script. We just started Leviticus this week. It's a tough script to read in our Bible reading plan. But read the script. What has God to say to you through this book? He has something to say. For some of us, that might be the practice for us this week. Others of you, you're just burdened by, your, by things happening in your life. You know what the season is called Lent? And you know how long Lent is for? 40 days. It's a 40-day preparation for Easter. The reminder of the great liberation that happens where God removes our shame. Maybe for some of you, the practice is, I need to get more intentional Lent. Join us as we fast, as we pray. Or for some of you, you're just so burdened, you need to cry out to God. We have a prayer gathering tonight where we're all going to gather and cry out to God together. In other words, we have so many different opportunities, you have no excuse not to practice something. It is there, available wherever you are at. And if you want to see God working in your life, let's practice this together. And so as I invite the praise team up, can I just close with a word of prayer? And then we'll respond also with praying as a congregation. But let's take a brief moment and let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, I just lift up our church to you. I know for some of us here, we acknowledge there might be a God. We believe in a God. We worship a God. And yet, oh Lord, we need this God to work in our lives. Our lives, oh Lord, they tend to look far different than the picture of Moses. And I pray that we instead could really see that, Lord, you want us to have Yahweh in our life, where you are shaping us and molding us, where you, oh Lord, are intimately involved in us. And so as we take a moment to briefly pray and respond, would your spirit just move in helping us to see, oh Lord, the type of God you want to be in our lives and the type of people you call us to be. In your son's name we pray.